Hey everyone, welcome to PT Sex Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to grow their fundamentals, but in bite-sized segments of time. And today's topic, we are going to discuss something you might more so see if you're a sports PT, maybe working on the sideline, but we're covering cervical stingers, also known as burners. But what are stingers or burners? So essentially what we're going to be covering this episode is what it is, who gets them, how it happens, and what do we do about it, which is pretty much the outline of almost every episode I've done about a topic. But a cervical stinger is an overstretching of the upper trunk of the brachial plexus or compression of C5, C6, depending on what the mechanism of the injury is. And we're going to cover more about the proposed mechanisms on how this even happens, um, because it can happen a variety of ways, but it's basically an injury to the cervical nerve roots or brachial plexus that results in a, a temporary sensory or motor deficit of one upper extremity or arm lasting between seconds to hours. So it's a transient nerve injury. Usually this is evaluated on the, by the sideline staff um, because it is transient. You may not see this in the clinic unless it is a longer lasting nerve injury or if you're maybe treating as a sports PT. Um, it can be associated with prolonged muscle weakness and other long-term sequelae that needs more therapy, which is what I'm alluding to but not always. So it's maybe not as common in your regular orthopedic clinic. So who gets them? I want you to picture more of your collision sports like rugby and American football. But you can also see this in boxing, gymnastics, hockey, weightlifting. Um, in fact, it's probably pretty underreported, um, but it's four times more likely to happen in the games than in practice. In American football, it is the most common cervical injury among the NCAA American football players with an injury rate of 1.87 per 10,000 athletic exposures. Preseason practice injury rate is higher than in-season, and they attribute this in this research article, um, which I'll probably put below because I think it has some good insight on treatment that we'll cover here in a sec, but probably more so from potential lower fitness level and also not wanting to get taken out in season. Because if you have treated athletes before, they like to compete and to get sidelined by an injury is very frustrating. So they may not mention it, especially if they don't think it's as important or they think the risk is worth it. So all that to be said, it may be at a higher rate than what I just read off. Now, this kind of makes sense. As I mentioned, collision sports, we don't really see this quite as much in cross-country runners um, unless they are whipping their head like crazy as they're running. So let's get into how does it actually happen? Well, there are several mechanisms that are proposed. I'm going to cover three. So number one, in no particular order, we can see this if there is a direct nerve compression from a hit to the brachial plexus at herbs point. If you don't quite remember what herb's point is, this is basically an anatomical location. It's superior to the clavicle, where C5 and C6 nerve roots join to form a common bundle that branches off into the suprascapular nerve, 
the nerve to the subclavius, and terminal branches stemming from the anterior and posterior divisions of the brachial plexus. Sounds kind of like some important spots, right? Now, a direct hit usually injures C5 and part of C6 in the upper root. So looking more into like the deltoids, the supraspinatus, the biceps. And before I go too far into my love of nerves, back to the direct compression, it's basically a percussive injury. So that's number one, herbs point. Number two, it can be a traction injury. And usually this is a traction injury to the brachial plexus from an increased neck shoulder angle. So picture this, a forceful blow that causes a depression of the shoulder. So the shoulder's going downward and lateral flexion of the neck to the contralateral side. So shoulders going down, necks going the opposite direction, we get a traction injury. And number three, cervical root compression from extreme cervical flexion or extension with ipsilateral side bend towards the side of trauma. So basically, we are putting a lot of compression in, in the neuroforamina. Keep in mind that with nerves, there are still graded severity. So we can use our grades of a grade one, like a neuropraxia, grade two, exonotmesis, grade three, neurotmesis. Usually cervical stingers or burners are more of like a grade one or grade two, not a grade three. There are some other anatomical changes that have been cited as risk factors for people who are more likely to have cervical stingers. Some of those would be maybe insufficient protective epineurium or perineurium around those nerves, stiffened denticulate ligaments, which basically generate counter-traction forces when the brachial plexus is under tension, local osteophyte formation, and scaling muscle hypertrophy. Also, a common risk factor I, I have seen is if you have a history of these in the first place. So... It is always important to have differentials, right? So we've talked about how it happens, but what if it's not actually what we think it is? So we should assess for it. In your differentials, keep in mind that these stingers should be unilateral. So if they are having bilateral upper extremity symptoms or any lower extremity symptoms, you should probably be concerned about a possible cervical cord, neopraxia, or something from the spinal cord origin. It's also good to screen for cervical fractures. So keep in mind that we do have screens in our research, like Canadian C-spine rolls, for instance, where you can utilize this and be safe by your patients. Because again, this is usually a collision-associated injury. And it's still good to screen for potential vascular injuries. So screening for reports of headaches, dizziness, nausea and vomiting, altered consciousness, dysarthria, and changes in vision. Also probably pretty good. Um, <clears throat> and then also radiculopathy. So these patients, when we're assessing them, if they're on the sideline or wherever you're seeing them, if you do see them, they usually will complain of sharp pain and they'll have reduced range of motion of the neck. These are probably the most common symptoms. Pain can often start in the supraclavicular area and transition to more of a circumferential, non-dermatomal pattern that radiates down the a unilateral arm. So not both sides, one side, same side as where the pain is on the neck. Weakness and paresthesias can present in a third of the cases and most last up to one day. 
Um, but they can have pain, burning, paresthesia, pins and needles, weakness, all sorts of symptoms, depending on what part of the nerve is affected, right? It may just purely even be sensory. So for example, if the only part of the nerve that was compressed was mainly in the DRG. And this is exclusively unilateral. So when you're assessing these patients and hopefully screening out other more sinister thing. They might have altered motor patterns when using their shoulder, maybe if it's been longer, some atrophy of the deltoid or supraspinatus. They might have shoulder depression or atrophy or asymmetry in the neck, and they might hold their extremity close to the body. So if we are working with this patient, wherever we are, if we'll cover this more from like a sideline angle, keep in mind that I'm not a sports therapist, but this is coming from an article that I'm going to add to the notes because I, I think it does a decent job of kind of running through the, um, the process of screening these patients efficiently. But first, make sure nothing is life-threatening and you're looking for deformities side-to-side indicative of fractures or dislocations. You can palpate the cervical paraspinal muscles or shoulder girdle for in- checking to see if they have an induced muscle spasm. It's probably not going to feel very good if they just got their head knocked. Um, and then looking at their motor exam of bilateral, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, deltoid, biceps, brachioradialis, triceps, anterior serratus, and wrist flexors, etc. So basically looking side to side on if there's any muscular changes or activation changes. Is it different side to side? And is it a peripheral nerve that's affected? Is it more of a specific um, myotome that's affected or multiple myotomes to really try and pinpoint what is going on. You can look at their range of motion of their shoulder and their cervical once the serious injuries are rolled out. Now, other tests that we can do for these patients are nerve conduction tests and imaging. So for nerve conduction, they might get an EMG or electromyography or an NCS nerve conduction studies to confirm the diagnosis. These would need to show fibrillation potentials, delayed conduction, prolonged latencies, or positive waves. Um, And it shouldn't be performed before three weeks of the injury date. And then, of course, imaging x-rays are always great to rule out bony injuries, Um, MRIs as well to be able to get a better um, visual of the soft tissues themselves. But there you have it. Obviously, this episode, like all of my others, could have been a lot more in-depth. But the main thing that you should have gathered from this is what exactly a cervical stinger is, mechanisms of how it's happened, and some initial things that you would look for or maybe screen for to make sure they don't have something more serious going on. So if you have any questions at all, you can always reach out at ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com. If this podcast has been helpful to you in any sort of way, whether you've been preparing for a test or just studying up for patients, I would invite you to leave a review about your experience. Um, This just really helps the podcast to grow. But that is it for today, guys. I hope you have a great rest of your day and until next time. Thank you.